Now today I'd like to read to us from uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6. And uh, this is uh, part of our series, as you know, and next week we'll be winding up the series in 1 Timothy. But uh, this is an interesting passage. Um, I'm going to begin with verse 2b. How do you like that? Uh, just like the ESV divides the paragraphs there. You'll notice that uh, verses 2, 3, 4, and uh, 5 uh, uh, really are a denunciation. Paul's last, his final opportunity in a letter of this size to denounce the false teachers at Ephesus. But then he, he moves into an issue in particular. Uh, you know, you're all familiar, you've heard this phrase, the health and wealth gospel, become a Christian, you'll be rich. Well, I don't know if that's exactly what these false teachers were doing, but they're probably teaching something like that. And so Paul, having rebuked these false teachers, now goes into a, uh, uh, to redirect uh, the understanding of the congregation through Timothy and this instruction about the nature of wealth and how we should approach wealth and how we should approach money. And uh, so I think it's pretty fascinating. And you'll see that he first deals um, with what I will define as, I'll explain later, but he will first deal with what I would say is the... Um, uh, the poor, or those, uh, not those desperately destitute, but those who think they do not have enough. He will deal on the other side with what he calls the rich, those who have uh, more than they, uh, than they possibly need. But in the middle, there is this charge to Timothy, but really to all of us, to be uh, a man of God or a woman of God. And that passage in the middle is so significant to me that we're going to spend next week on that. We'll spend this week on the valley, so to speak, on either side of the passage. So but let me begin it uh, together, and you can read along with me. Paul says to Timothy, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit. He understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, comma, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered, wandered away from the faith, literally been seduced, it's a passive verb, have, have been seduced or have been misled from the faith and pierced themselves with many pain. Now Paul goes into that charge for the man of God. He says, but as for you, O man of God, you flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called, about which you made good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who is in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. Yes, I charge you to keep the commandment unstained, free from reproach, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display 
at the proper time. He who is the blessed, the only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. But as for the rich in this present age, you see how he returns now to the subject, but to the rich. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let's pray together. Father, I ask you now that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, I have to tell you that uh, this week I, I nearly titled this sermon, Tibby's Bone. And, uh, and, and then this is how that happened. Uh, Diane and I have a Boston Terrier, and his name is Mr. Tibbs. Uh, his full name is, as I hope you know, is Euphonious Tibbs. But this past Sunday, we bought Tibby a treat. And the lady at the pet store assured us that he would absolutely love it. And now when I looked at this thing, I'm calling it a bone, but when I looked at it, it looked to me like a, a rolled-up, rock-hard, chicken-infested tortilla. And when we took the saran wrap or whatever it was off with the cellophane, it smelled just like what I described. But to Mr. Tibbs, he was ecstatic with this. And he immediately grabbed that treat out of my hand and he took off and he ran to a remote corner of the house where he could enjoy it all by himself. And then a few minutes later, and this was the surprising thing to me, I heard him whimpering. He began whimpering. And then he would yelp. And I thought, my word, what's, what's wrong? Mr. Tibbs is uh, upset. In fact, the, I let this go on for five or ten minutes. I realized Mr. Tibbs is inconsolable. And why? And I went over, and there was Mr. Tibbs. He was no longer in his corner. He was by the front door of a house, the treat between his paws. And I understood what the issue was. The issue was that he loved that treat so much that he wanted to go outside and bury it, and there was no way he could do it. He wanted it to be his, all his. We hoped he would enjoy it. We really did. But it made him miserable. And why? May we have the mugshot? This is Mr. Tibbs. I don't know if you can see it, but you can see his sneaky little eyes. You can see how he's licking his chops with that slithering serpentine tongue. My friends, this is a greedy dog. Are you a Mr. Tibbs? In our passage this morning, uh, the Apostle Paul addresses the issue of greed. 
what he calls the, the love of money. In verses 9 and 10, he addresses those who don't believe they have enough. In verses 17 through 19, he addresses those who have more than they need. And for simplicity purposes, follow me please, just help me with this this morning, I'm going to refer to them as the poor and the rich. But understand that by poor, I do not mean those souls who lack basic essentials of life. What I'm referring to is those who see themselves as poor when they think about money, and so they act accordingly. And by rich, I don't mean zillionaires. I don't mean Bill Gates with his $96 billion or Mark Zuckerberg with his $65 billion. I'm referring to those who have more than they need in order to live well. But the moniker today is going to be rich and, and poor, as I've described. I hope you'll bear with me. And what's interesting about that is that Paul's warning to the rich and Paul's warning to the poor is really exactly the same warning. He warns them against greed, though that greed is expressed perhaps in different ways, either in the lust to gain riches or in the stinginess to hold on to what you have, either in the lust to gain what you don't have or the lust to be tight-fisted with what you do have. Besides greed, what the greedy poor and the greedy rich have in common is one other key thing. The other th key thing that the greedy poor and the greedy rich have in common is what they lack. They lack, not money. They lack contentment. And money can never produce contentment. The love of money, Paul says, is the root of all kinds of evil. Contentment has no part of that. And I want you to think with me for a moment about what contentment is. You know it obviously comes from two words, content, and then ment, which is a French word. And ment refers to the state of something. Someone who is, has contentment is satisfied with the contents of their life. They're satisfied with what they, what they have. Contentment means I have enough. I am, as Paul put it to the Philippians where he wrote about contentment in Philippians 4, he said, I am amply supplied. And here he writes to us and he says, if we have food and clothing, and clothing is a concept of covering. It would include not only clothes but shelter. Food and clothing is essentially a, uh, what I want to say, an abbreviation, a symbol for the necessities of life. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Uh, we'll be fine. We, we're amply supplied. This is a classic paraphrase, I think, of Proverbs 30, verses 7 to 9. Probably familiar with it when, I hear it, uh, when, when you hear it. The writer said, two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. That's significant because he says, don't deny these to me before I die. This, what, what he's asking for isn't easy to achieve. It's not an easy point to arrive at. He's saying, I, I hope that before I die, I can say that I have these things. This is what I'm asking for. This isn't easy for me, God. Help me. 
The first one he says is remove far from me falsehood and lying. And the second one he says is give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is God? Or lest I be poor and steal, steal and profane the name of my God. And with this, Jesus was in complete agreement. He does not teach us to pray, give me wealth so that I can be a blessing. He preaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Give me what is needful for me. And at the same time, he teaches us to pray that way, to be that kind of people. He also teaches, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's where you're going to end up. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's not a present tense, it is a future tense. Now the, the question we have to ask ourselves, in all honesty, is how can anyone actually live this way? Have this mentality, really walk this out. And the short answer is godliness. Godliness without contentment, Paul talks about it. Godliness without contentment is a very thin veil. Folks, it takes very little to pierce that veil. Just bring up money. Watch families when they close out an estate after someone's died. But godliness with contentment is the real deal. And contentment, you see, the point is that contentment is the fruit of a deep and genuine faith in God. So this passage, it's not about rich and poor. It talks about them. But it really is about greed versus contentment. The contentment that comes from godliness. Because generosity comes from a godly contentment. The conviction that God is, He will be my provider. Jesus wasn't misleading me when He taught me to pray, to think, to live. Give me this day a daily bread that I am amply satisfied when I have that. And at the same time to say, do not store up treasures for yourself on earth. He's not misleading. He's not putting me in a bind. I don't have to worry. I, I, my clothes are always going to look better than the, uh, than, the, than the lilies. The bread on my table is always going to be better than what the birds of the air are eating. Because God is my God. God is my provider. God will take care of me. The issue in whether we in, invest in the kingdom of God, to advance the kingdom of God isn't whether we think God is worthy. I'm talking to you who are Christian. Every Christian knows that God is worthy of everything, that he gives everything to us. The issue is whether in relation to ourselves, we know that God is trustworthy. 
whether we know God will provide for us. And I want to say, and it may surprise you today, but this confidence does not come from reading a book. This confidence does not come even from reading the good book, the holy book. This confidence comes from doing what God tells us to do in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, which is to test him by our giving. He said there, test me in this. And it is by testing him by our giving that he trains us by his faithfulness so we learn to be generous. It is a matter of training, of training ourselves. Or you say, God training us. We test him. He's faithful. We've been trained. We have learned. We, we have truly learned. Not just here. We've really learned. And we are transformed. We become different. We are more open. We are more gracious. We become more generous. It has always, always been a matter of training. Paul writes in verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. A senseless means thoughtless. Senseless means mindless. It, it, what it means, just, you know, take away the pejorative, you know, critical aspect. It just means without thinking things through. And here's an assumption that I've heard, and maybe you've heard it, maybe you've said it to yourself I'm sure I've said this to myself. We're all growing in Christ. You know, we come from a point of zero training, don't we? Unless we've been trained well in our homes where we grew up. But here's an assumption I've heard from others. I can't give now, but as soon as I'm able, boy, I'm surely going to do that. And I'm going to say that that is not thinking things through. The truth is that the greedy poor become the stingy rich if they become rich. And the generous rich come from among the gracious poor. It's always been that way. Money doesn't change character. Money is not a substitute for training. It takes so much more than money to become the generous rich. Jesus taught, and if it, I think it really does apply here, he said that he who is faithful with little will be entrusted with much. And I think that's true. God knows we need training. We need training. Training for the age to come, which I think is the immediate reference for Jesus. I don't want to take his words out of context, please. But I do think it speaks to our context as well. And it really is by testing God, our testing God. It's not you being, it's our testing God that we advance from being reluctant, sparing, and yet guilt-driven givers to determined investors in the kingdom of God. So we move from the position of asking ourselves, I mean, honestly, you know, we won't say it out loud, but we say it right, how little can I give so I can save face and look at myself in a mirror to how much can I give to advance the kingdom of God? I want to be involved in significant, effort to advance the kingdom of God in the short time that I am alive. Because it really is the most important thing. 
question be asked. Where does a person start when they've received no training? This whole idea of giving is a sore subject. Uh, you know, wave the eyes, look away. Where, where do you begin if we're in that position? And I would say, you know, I'm just going to be very honest with you. I mean, you may not feel like you're my children, but I'm reaching an age where most people I regard as my children. And I don't mean that in a patronizing way. I love my children most of the time. But I want to say to you that if this describes you, you are not alone. I want to say that most Christian adults, most working Christian adults really are in this position. And if you're a working adult, you're a member of this church, this is what I would call it. You're my child and you came to me and said, Dad, what should I do? This is what I would say to you. Begin testing God. Don't, I'm going to be very specific here. Begin testing God with $20 a week. $20 a week. Support the church, support missionaries, support the deacons fund, support the revitalization, support other efforts, good ministry, kingdom of God efforts, whether in the church or outside the work, church, $20 a week. $20 a week. Test him for a year. Test him for a year. And at the end, you ask yourself these questions. Have I gone hungry? Did my clothes fall off my body? Have I been cast out of my home? Did I have to go back to a flip phone? You ask yourself all those questions. And you may actually find yourself responding even sooner that God really is providing for me. It's not so bad. In fact, it's not bad at all. In fact, it's good. And you might want to change what you've been doing and not wait a year to do that. I'm not saying this to you this morning because the church needs your money. I'm saying this because what Paul said to Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. This is an area of godliness where we must discipline ourselves. We must train ourselves. If we do not train ourselves, we won't be trained. And so we test God. He says, test me. It's one of the few times he says, test me. Test me. He'll teach you. He'll show you he's faithful. You'll be confident and you'll move forward. Now, here's a comment that Paul makes that's really foundational to all of his thinking. But it's easy, I think, for us to miss it because it's almost proverbial. In verse 6, he wrote, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. A rich widow died. And at the funeral, one attendee asked another, how much do you think she left? And the other guy thought about it for a minute and said, I know the answer. All of it. She left all of it. One day while Jesus was teaching, a man approached him from the crowd. 
I think it's kind of cheeky myself. He said, teacher, tell me my, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Don't divide the inheritance. And Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? And then he said to him, you watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I will do. I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build bigger barns and I'm going to store all my surplus grain there. And then I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? Jesus concluded, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Now, I don't know if you noticed this. I think it's extremely interesting how Jesus responded. Because what you've got here is a guy who came to Jesus who felt like his brother had been given or was taking unfair advantage of him in inheritance. So there's a guy coming, and, and uh, I mean, his basic plea without giving any information, the implication was that he was being unjustly treated. And maybe, maybe he, he, he was. Maybe he had a father like uh, Howard Hughes, the billionaire Howard Hughes, or the famous artist Pablo Picasso. Both those men died without any will at all. And the fighting among those families lasted among the children, the grandchildren. Of course, the third cousins, the fifth cousins, the, uh, you know, the, uh, um, the, uh, the children born out of wedlock, whatever. I mean, whoever had any connection, you know, the fight went on for years and years and years. You really want to know how deep brotherly love goes? Watch the response when money is an issue. People feel like it's a matter of their fair share. But Jesus refuses to speak to this man's special pleading for justice. Instead, he warns him to beware every, of every kind of greed, because there's so many kinds of it. And then in the parable that follows, what he does in that parable is he speaks not to this man in a state of life, but he speaks to this man's hidden craving for wealth. Oh, that he could be a rich man. Oh, that his problem was, I don't know where to store all my neat stuff. And Jesus denounces it as foolishness. It isn't just that you cannot take it with you. It's that you will not take it with you. So don't put off training yourself in godliness in this area. We often say, yeah, we have no idea what tomorrow holds. You do know what tomorrow holds in this respect. You know the day is coming when all the wealth you've accumulated can do you no good. That the only thing it can do is testify against you if you've been greedy. You do know that day is coming. That's a real type 
Now, I did not title the sermon Tibby's Bow. I titled it Money, Money, Money. How many have ever heard that? Can you say it with me? Can you sing it with me? Money, money, money. Okay, now I see. You're, you're, you watch. Unless you were alive and a teenager in 1973 and liked soul funk music and you liked the Ajax, you, you, the OJs rather, you, you watched The Apprentice. This was the refrain that kicked off every episode of the hit TV show, The Apprentice. Of course, the song became an anthem for greed. That's what it's all about. Money, money, money. But you know, as Christians, you know, it's good to look close. It's good to think twice. Let me tell you something about this song. This song was written to denounce greed. The title of that song is For the Love of Money. And it was a soul funk hit in 1973. And the lyrics, which you never heard on The Apprentice, you just heard money, money, money. The lyrics go on many verses, pretty profound. And these are street lyrics out of Philadelphia. But the lyrics include this. For the love of money, people will lie. Lord, they will cheat. For the love of money, people don't care who they hurt or beat. Almighty dollar, I know money is the root of all evil. Do funny things to some people. Give me a nickel. Brother, can you spare me a dime? It's worth listening to that song. It's a good song. I think it's a deep irony that this song that was used to denounce greed in the, uh, among the poor was used to promote greed among the rich. That song was misused. That song wasn't about getting money at all. It wasn't about being a $200,000 a year apprentice to a billionaire. It's not at all what that was about. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I encourage you to take Paul's words to heart. Do not be misled into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. But do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. Store up treasure for yourselves in heaven as a good foundation for the future so that you take hold of that which is life indeed. It's true of the present. Of course, it's true of the future. This is God's great work in us. It's part of his work of grace in us. And I commend it to you. In an age of incredible greed and a terrible senses of entitlement, I commend this to you. To live simply for Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and uh, thank you so much for this portion of your word. And I ask you to help us take it to heart. I ask you because we are all tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. We, in this room, I'd say the, we just generically, we are, there are days when we see ourselves as poor and there are days when we see ourselves as rich Our household incomes in this community are many times, probably 10 times, what the average household income is around the world. And yet, 
at the same time when it's convenient and when we're discontent. We see ourselves as poor. But Father, help us to see ourselves as men and women of God and to listen to your voice and let you lead us. Lead us so we don't become distracted. So we maintain that focus. It's life with you in every area. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.